Welcome to an episode of the I Am Black History Podcast, brought to you by In the Black Canada and Deep Visions Media. I am your host, Donna Paris, and I thank you so much for continuing to tune in to listen to these stories from descendants of Black folks who came to Canada in a variety of ways and made a life and a community for themselves and those coming after them. Join me now for part two of my conversation with Percy Paris. Speaking about history, not knowing our history, what do you remember learning about Black history in school? That there were slaves. That's it. That's it. That there were slaves and they, uh, all they did was uh, manual labor. And somebody had to show them how to do that. If they didn't do it, then they got whipped. I mean, there was nothing uh, in the public school systems that made me feel good about who I was. When you're in, sitting in school and they're, you know, the teacher's got the book there and you're reading about slaves, how did you feel? I felt low self-esteem. Uh, there was an incident uh, in grade school where the teacher tried to force me to read a paragraph in a book about slavery. And I refused to read it. And that teacher marched down to my desk, raised her hand, and slapped me across the face. And did you go home and tell your parents that? I went home, told my parents. Dad looked after it. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, she she lost a job. But the fact is that she wasn't the only one. So, Tell us more about that. Like growing up as a black male in the town of Windsor, for you, your brother, you have one sister and all your brothers. What was it like? I had siblings, but also and I, I have to uh, clarify that Lauren and Carolyn also came to live with us, and uh, they were first cousins, uh, but they were raised under our roof as if, and I treat them today as if they were a brother and a sister. Mm -hmm. So uh, those times, was there racism? Absolutely. But one of the pluses that the Paris family had going for them is we had a secret weapon. We were all pretty good athletes. People wanted to be on your team. People wanted to have you on their team. I can remember, though, in my early youth, how you're picking teams. You're going to play whatever the game is, and you're going to pick size. And the nursery rhymes, the white kids would say, uh, the eeny, meeny, money mo." They're rhymes to determine on what side or whose side you're going to be on. And so there was a lot of uh, a lot of that which would end up in a fight. And there was uh, books, textbooks, Little Black Sambo. There were textbooks that didn't portray me in a very positive way. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the schoolyard, there was uh, the name Colleen. In the classroom, the dehumanization. Uh, black. This was all around me. Then playing sports. Generally speaking, if you're the only black family in the town, you're going to be the only black on the sport team because of the age differences. And uh, no matter where you went, opposition teams had names for you. Mm. And they would show it. There was no uh, whispering the names. Uh, it was hurled on you repeatedly, and uh, if you got into a confrontation uh, with one of the opposition players while you were 
you you know you were going to get a pound. And a lot of times uh, you'd get twice the the penalty that the white player would get if indeed he got any penalty at all. So I faced it all my life. It never gets any better. And I can even talk about my days in the House of Assembly as a government elected official for 11 years, having to fight a battle of all places, the hall of halls of a House of Assembly, the place where laws are made for all citizens of the province. It was there. Yeah. I retired from politics. It took me well over a year. I was so battered and bruised that uh, I felt like I had been at war. It took me well over maybe two years before I could get on my feet again mentally. You have two sons and a daughter. What advice did you give them about dealing with racism? Because, you know, things are different than when your dad was younger, your mom and dad, things were different for you. Things will be different for them, but there's lots of things that are the same as well. I used to tell my, my kids the same things that dad used to tell me, but I stopped. I stopped because what worked for dad doesn't necessarily going to work for my kids because times have changed. Uh, we've got a more diverse world out here now, particularly in Nova Scotia and Canada. My father was probably eager, if I can say this, that, you know, you got to stand up for yourself. And dad said, you know, you got to stand up. He says, that meant fisticuffs. He was of the mind, so be it. I did some fisticuffs when I was younger. But then when I was raising my children, I used the system to combat racism. And uh, I had uh, our oldest son. Jason was being bullied. And uh, this is one example. And kids were beating him up. I went to the principal. I went to the school bus driver. I went to the RCMP. And nobody was, going to, nobody was doing anything about it. Finally, I went, and, uh, I went to the courts and uh, filed a judgment myself against the parents. And got an appearance before a judge. Uh, the parents and the kids uh, had to go in front of the judge, and along with Jason and I, we put in the made our testimony, and the judge heard it and agreed with me, and uh, that put a stop to it. So yes, a different different strategy for a different time. Anyone that's gone to uh, school in Nova Scotia in the public school system knows what racism is, especially back in the fifties, the sixties, and the seventies. You learn pretty quickly that you're different. You may not know before you go to school that you're different, but you learn pretty darn quick when you're there that you're different. I want to go back and talk a bit about hockey because you talked about sports being really important to your family. Hockey was big in your family. Your brother, John, first black coach in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, first black scout in the NHL, the first black general manager in professional hockey and the first black coach in professional hockey. In fact, all of you were in hockey. Can you tell us about that? Did it all start with your dad? It all started with Dad. Dad was a, a good athlete. He was a gifted ball player, but he was an avid hockey freak. He played hockey himself. I wouldn't classify Dad as a star 
hockey player, but he was certainly a good hockey player. I think I could skate before I could walk. And uh, if there was a patch of ice, a puddle, we would skate on it. Yeah, Dad had us on on skates, and uh, we just fell in love with the game of hockey. That was typical for Canadians, right? If you're Canadian, you, you grew up loving the game. Well, and tell us some more about John. I know he wrote a book called uh, They Call Me Chocolate Rocket. John had quite a career. John was a big junior star. John goes to the Montreal Canadiens, the junior Montreal Canadiens training camp. There was uh, there were a number of people from Nova Scotia that went. Miles McDonald, Brian O'Byrne, John Paris, Daryl Maxwell from Toronto. I just named about four right off the top of my head. Uh, anyway, uh, they go to this hockey camp, this hockey tryout, and at the end of the camp, the players were saying, who was the best player on the ice? John Paris was the best player on the ice. Well. John Paris is black. What are we going to do with John Paris? He's the best player here, but also he wasn't French. Two marks against him. Doesn't speak French, and he's black. They kept him, but not on the Canadians team. All the slots were pre-filled, and they weren't counting on this. This kid from Nova Scotia, this black kid from Nova Scotia. Uh, so they put him in the uh, uh, what now is known as the Q, uh, the Quebec League, the Junior League in the, in Quebec. And um, he lit it up. Rocket Richard used to go to John's hockey games, and they became friends of a sort. Occasionally, Rocket would uh, ask John, well, John, how many goals are you going to score tonight? <laughs> and John would tell him, well, we'll see. John joined his junior years. Wasn't 100% healthy, but nobody knew that he was sick. Even John didn't know how sick he was. He got traded from Montreal Canadiens organization to the Philadelphia Flyers. And so his first year of pro hockey, uh, he would have been down in the United States, down in Knoxville. So you got this black guy playing hockey in Knoxville, Tennessee. The residents didn't take kindly to that. John. Eventually, for health reasons, cancer, had to leave hockey, and his love for the game turned him to coaching. And then he he made another name for himself, pretty good at uh, what he'd done. He won everywhere as he went. He was coaching in the um, uh, the Q, Quebec League, and he got into an argument with one of the owners of the team. He got fired, and the kids, the team, refused to play. They wouldn't go out on the ice because their coach had been fired. You never hear tell of this. And uh, John uh, went to them and said, look, uh, go play the game. Uh, this is your life. Uh, you know, I'll be all right. And then, of course, uh, he's in the pro now coaching. And uh, he's with the team called the Atlanta Knights. And the Atlanta Knights, this will tell you something about the hockey culture as well. The Atlanta Knights were playing in the uh, Central Hockey League. They were the number one firm team of Tampa Bay Lightning. The number one firm team. 
everybody knows who Tampa Bay, they won how many Stanley Cups. But anyway, with the Atlanta Knights, they win the league, they win the league championship. So John becomes the first black coach to win a championship in professional hockey. Now, in most circumstances, when you're with the number number one firm team, you win, you get a promotion to the big league. When you win, you get rewarded. The phone never rang for John. One step away from the National Hockey League. And you would have thought, at the very, very least, they would have said, okay, well, I don't know. You're assistant to the assistant to the assistant. It doesn't happen. Hockey is greatest sport as it is to participate in. And there's a culture. There's a hockey culture. There's not one that should be, that we can break about. I don't want anyone to get me wrong. Hockey has opened up a lot of doors for me. Uh, there are a lot of good people in hockey. There are a lot of good police officers out there as well. There are also a lot of bad, bad people involved in hockey. And there are certainly a lot of bad police officers. I don't understand why it has taken uh, hockey such a long time to be more proactive in, in changing that culture. To go out and have a, have a night where you wear the pride uniforms for the warm-up, then you take them off and go out and play the game. Well, what that is, it's a, it's a gesture. It's not a concrete action that's going to produce the change that's required. Am I being too critical? Tell us how you really feel first. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've done a lot of things. You've owned a bar. You ran the Jet Journal, a local newspaper. You worked for the municipality of Halifax I mentioned earlier. It wasn't like your plate wasn't already full. The things we're talking about, is that why it was important for you to go into politics? That's part of the reason I went into politics. Uh, I think one has to understand the racism that exists in Nova Scotia. And then once a person understands that racism, they will have a greater understanding why I was involved in politics. The unfortunate part about my 11 years is it wasn't long enough. It could have been long enough if there had been more people in the House of Assembly that looked like me. You know, we all don't have to think alike, but we all certainly have to be on the same page. I'm still working with politicians to make some changes in the province of Nova Scotia that will make this a better place to live and raise a family. We do all kinds of things in the area of immigration and refugees, and it befuddles me that we encourage people to come here that don't look like you or I, but we don't do those things that are necessary when it comes to retaining those individuals. I've got to say this. Canada has done a somewhat great job of opening the doors to an extent. We've always had this continent called Africa. In Africa, there have been wars. There have been droughts. There have been famines. There have been refugees. We never opened up the doors to the continent of Africa like we've opened up the doors to Ukraine. I'm not saying we shouldn't open the doors to Ukraine, 
What I'm saying is, let's think and put this into perspective, and we get a better look at the racism that exists here in this beautiful country of ours. What are you most pleased about as your time as Minister of African Nova Scotian Affairs? I'm most pleased, I think, as Minister of African Nova Scotian Affairs with the signing off uh, with respect to Africville. But that also is my most disappointment. Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? What I'm disappointed about is the actual settlement itself. I'm glad they signed off on it, but the actual settlement itself was far from enough. Africville sits there with a museum, and I use the term museum loosely only because it's a replica of a church and not adequate for Africville to house the artifacts and the memories that it deserves. And what's not there is an interpretive center. I hope anyone that's listening can understand my contradiction when I when I say that. So I'm happy they signed off, but I'm not happy what they signed off for. Well, I happened to be in Nova Scotia this past summer when the 40th anniversary of the Africville reunion was on. What does it mean to the people of Africville when they get together? And what does it say about African Nova Scotians? If I can quote the, the motto, the spirit lives on. Uh, that 40th reunion, it was the biggest reunion we've had yet. And I remember it well because that was really also the same time we had a big brain that I was caught in. And I was in a tent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was in a tent in Africville. And the true spirit of Africville was when the owners of the tent provided me with a cot <laughs> and uh, a roof over my head, beverages, and said, Percy, you're not going anywhere tonight. You're staying here. That's about the spirit. And that just was so remindful of how Africville residents not only looked after one another, but they looked after visitors as well. The spirit of Africville is alive and well. I make a prediction. Africville will become as well known and as a popular a destination as Peggy's Cove. That's a big prediction. Wow. I would like to see that. It needs help to do that, but mm -hmm. it's already gathered a, a reputation around the world. It's internationally known. It's a, a national historic site and soon to be a UNESCO destination. So Africville is on its way. I may not live to see it, but it's well on its way. It needs an interpretive center. It needs a, a proper, uh, the replica is a replica of the church. It can't serve as a meeting place, as a museum, as office space. It's just unreasonable for anyone to have thought that and for anyone to uh, wipe their hands in the city of Halifax think that their work is done. It's not right. It's not fair. And for some reason, people feel that, oh, if I say I'm sorry, that makes it all right. And the Prime Minister of Canada visited Africville and uh, he made a comment to me because just before that, they had an event that he attended. He said, well, Percy, he says, 
uh, we had an event where we issued an apology to the number two construction battalion. He said, I can't recall you being there. I said, all due respect, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, I wasn't there. And I purposely boycotted that. He looked at me and said, well, why? I said, because I don't want to hear apology. And quite honestly, Mr. Prime Minister, again, being very respectful, I'm sick and tired of apologies. They are just words. I said, do you know what makes me a happy man? Action. He looked at me, shook his head, and didn't disagree with me. Africville is, you know, one place in Nova Scotia. There's so much Black history across the entire province. There's Whitney Pier. There's Shelburne and Birchmount, Truro, North Preston. You know, there's just so much Black history. There's so much Black history. There's so much racism. We've got this place in Windsor, Nova Scotia called Halliburton House. For those of you uh, that are familiar with Thomas Chandler, Halliburton was a racist. Yet he's got a building named after him. He's got a museum named after him. We've got to make that right. That's an easy to do, but we've got to make it right. Why is it such a challenge for schools in the province of Nova Scotia, public schools, to have more about Black history in, in the textbook? We've got to get rid of the textbooks we have, and we've got to stop whitewashing Canadian history. And that's what we've done for far too long. It pains me to hear when the cruise ships come to town, come to Halifax, people get off the cruise ships. It pains me to hear, oh, we didn't know there were black people living in Nova Scotia. How many times have I heard that? When I was the Minister of African Nova Scotian Affairs, and uh, I'm on this uh, trade mission, and I got around my neck a tartan, Nova Scotia tartan. People see me as the minister for this place called Nova Scotia. I'm black, and there's no accompanying knowledge or information that's going with me. The province of Nova Scotia has got to play more of a role in the area of tourism when it comes to black tourism. Nova Scotia, it all started here. It all started here. And I wasn't going to get into this, but I'm afraid I got to just mention something. That's why I'm trying to be fair about Black Lives, the untold story. You've got the oldest indigenous black population in Canada is right here in Nova Scotia. And to me, that should have been episode one. I've only seen, I guess it's three, four episodes, but I'm waiting. When are you going to get into the the roots of Nova Scotia? I find the series very interesting. Right now, my heart tells me there's a little piece missing yet. Well, we'll see. <laughs> as, the, <laughs> as the series goes on. <laughs> yeah. I've actually made a recommendation to CTV uh, to uh, to do something locally or something similar with respect to the uh, indigenous population of, of Nova Scotia, the oldest communities. I said I wasn't going to talk about this, Donna, but I just find it frustrating as a generational African Nova Scotian that, that we don't get our credit. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about that we haven't touched on? <laughs> <laughs> we, could, we could stay here for a couple hours. And... We've been here almost a couple hours. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. 
you can always find things to talk about when it comes to uh, to our blackness. I don't want anything I say to be taken as criticism. I hope people will take it as trying to be constructive, trying to advocate for change, and trying to increase the knowledge base of everybody. It's all part of the uh, that word that we get bounced around so often today, that thing that's called inclusion. Sometimes inclusion, uh, when I hear some people use it, can be a real pain in the ass because you know what the hell they're talking about. Well, this is why David and I do the project we do, you know, mm-hmm. travel across the country, mm-hmm. collecting these stories because there's so much Black history that's not documented, it's not recorded, people don't know about it. I mean, I've learned so much. For all your travels, I mean, I think we started this conversation and, and uh, I mentioned to you about the Black paramedics, something that you never knew. And I'm sure that uh, when you travel west, particularly in Alberta, you will hear about John Weir. How many people outside of Alberta know about John Weir? How many people know about who were the real cowboys of the West? The cowboys of the West today, if you ask anybody, oh, they were the white guys and this and that. Well, the cowboys weren't white. <laughs> the cowboys were black. Another part of history mm-hmm. that's been whitewashed and stolen away from the black population of this great country. We started off also mentioning about how oral uh, uh, we are in the community. And I... I fear there's uh, I feel there's going to be some things lost uh, as this generation passes on, and and I think it's going to get less and less and less as uh, as with each generation. Mm. Maybe we all should be writing books. That's right. Like I said, we could be here for another couple of hours. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bruce. This has been amazing. I love sitting down, chatting with you, taking up all your time here. <laughs> No, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today and sharing. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. Because we can talk about the things you and I said we're not going to talk about. (laughs) 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 And we we can talk about family. (laughs) Yeah, them things we all can talk in in, in private. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Perth. Yep. Thanks for tuning in. You can catch other episodes of I Am Black History our voices, our stories, wherever you get your podcast. And if you have a story to tell, you can reach me at www.intheblackcanada.ca or at intheblackcanada at gmail.com. The only question is, what's your story?